So if you will, open with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. We are um, working our way through the gospel of Matthew here at Christ is King Church. We love going through books of the Bible. And so we've been in Matthew's gospel now for a little bit over a year. We're here now in Matthew chapter 8. And Matthew 8 and 9 is broken into an interesting format where he, Matthew gives us three miracles that Christ does. Then he, there's a little bit of teaching, three more miracles, a little bit of teaching, three more miracles, and a little bit of teaching. And so he's organized these two chapters in that way. And last week where we were at the beginning of Matthew chapter 8, we looked at those three miracles that Jesus did. We, we saw how Jesus is our healer. And this morning, we're looking at this discipleship section, this, this teaching here now that Jesus gives uh, before next week, we'll look at three more miracles. And so we're in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 18. And it says, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. That's the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is a, a large lake there uh, surrounding Capernaum and Galilee and, and where Jesus was at the time. So he, he sees the crowd and he says, let's go over to the other side of the lake. And a scribe came up to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This is the word of God. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would speak to our hearts today. Lord, help us to see what it is you want us to see today. Help us to hear what it is you want us to hear today. We've gathered here today as your people. We've gathered here today in your name. And so we know that you are here with us. Your presence is here. You're here to, to work in our hearts and you're here to work in our lives. Lord, we've exalted you. We've, we've, we've got a glimpse of your glory even in our time of worship today. I pray that you would help us to respond appropriately this morning to your word and even as we come to the table this morning we thank you that your presence is in and through all things that we're doing this morning speak to our hearts today in Jesus name amen I have three points uh, for us today from this text uh, but before we get to those I want to deal with the tone of this passage the tone that Jesus is speaking with when we look at the way Jesus responds to these two people, we have uh, someone identified as a scribe, someone else identified as a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And the way that Jesus speaks to them is a little bit off-putting. We might wonder, what is it that's going on with Jesus? Is he having a bad day? Did he wake up on the wrong side of the bed? Has he not had his coffee yet this morning? What is going on here? Well, when we look at what's going on, in fact, we see things are going great. There was miracles that were taking place that were, was drawing huge numbers of people, huge crowds were gathering around Jesus. And we had just seen that Jesus healed many people, that there was crowds that gathered uh, that night at Peter's house. And Jesus had healed Peter's mother-in-law. And, and, and then there was many who came to him that evening oppressed by demons, and he cast out the, the evil spirits with a word. And it says in the verse prior that he healed all who were sick. And this was a fulfillment of the prophecy that had been spoken by Isaiah that Jesus took our illnesses and our diseases. So things are going well. There's no reason for Jesus to not be in good spirits. Nevertheless, even though huge crowds are gathering around him, Jesus says... It's time to leave. It's time to leave this place. It's time to, to go somewhere else. And 
Here we begin to see that uh, this is a bit puzzling to our way of thinking. If this was happening where we were at, we would say, let's set up camp here. Let, let's, let's maximize this. Let's, let's try and get more people involved. Wow, we're gaining some momentum. How can we capitalize on this to reach more people? Hey, I got an idea. Let's print some T-shirts and let's print some flyers and let's get the word out about this revival that's taking place right here. And this in and of itself is puzzling for us that Jesus says, no, it's time to leave just as things are starting to pick up. And this is our first hint here in this text that what we think is important is often a lot different than what Jesus views as important. And so they're getting ready to leave. It doesn't tell us why they're leaving. I suspect that Jesus wants to go and reach another group of people. We've ministered here, we've blessed them, we've healed them, we've preached the word to them. But what about over here? What about the people who haven't heard? What about the people who haven't been healed? What about them? And so Jesus says it's time to go to the other side. But as they're getting ready to leave, to go to the other side of the lake... We have two interactions. The scribe comes and tells Jesus that he's going to follow him. And one of the disciples says that he can't come quite yet. He'll catch up with them later because he first needs to go and bury his father. And to both of them, Jesus responds in a way that seems harsh. It seems harsh. It seems abrasive, even combative. To the scribe, he says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's bad enough, but to the man whose father just passed away, he says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. It is a bit shocking to hear Jesus talk like this, it doesn't fit the usual picture we may have in our minds of sweet little Jesus, meek and mild. That picture that was hanging in my grandmother's guest bedroom of Jesus holding the little lamb with his flowing locks and halo around his head. Where did that Jesus go and who is this? It is a bit shocking but we need to never forget something about Jesus. This is a king. Jesus is a king. And most people fail to recognize this simple fact. We see the scribe and the disciple in this story fail to recognize this. Jesus is a king. And Jesus is not just any king. Jesus isn't like the emails we get from the Nigerian princes, right? Jesus isn't just any old king. No, Jesus is the king of all kings. Jesus is the king to whom other kings bow down. Jesus is the king that the wise men leave their kingdoms from the east. They, they leave whatever they have going on to come and bow down to this baby king. This is who Jesus is. And, and we should not forget this. Though the scribe and the disciple may not have known this, we should never lose sight of this, especially at this church where our name is literally Christ is King. But it's also right here in the text. It, it tells us this right here in the text that Christ is king, that Jesus is a king. We, hear, we see it here in verse 20 when Jesus speaks to the scribe and he says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but, and then this title that Jesus identifies himself as, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Now this is a title that Jesus uses 
for himself often in the Gospels. In fact, it's his favorite title for himself. He repeatedly identifies himself as the Son of Man. And this becomes the third most used title for Jesus in the New Testament. The first, of course, is Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It didn't say Jesus Christ on his birth certificate. Christ means the anointed one. Christ means the Messiah. That's that's the, the number one title that we see used for Jesus. The second title is Lord, that Jesus is Lord. But here is now the third most frequently used title for Jesus in the New Testament, and it is the the primary way, the primary title that Jesus uses for himself, self-identifying for us who he is as the Son of Man. Now, many people don't know what this is in reference to, and we're going to look at that here this morning from Daniel chapter 7. If you want to turn over there with me to Daniel chapter 7. But most people, when they see Jesus call himself the Son of Man, they think and assume that Jesus is using this title to express his humility. To express his humility that that Jesus is, yes, he's fully God, but he's also fully man. And so he is is showing how humble he is. He is showing how he is is one of us. And, And there is no doubt that the most humble person who has ever lived is Christ, no doubt. That he left heaven's glory to be born as a babe in a manger. That he took on human flesh, deity, becoming humanity. And not just to experience what it would be like to live as a human, although that experience in and of itself is humbling enough, but to take on human flesh so that that flesh could be nailed to a Roman tree. Taking on human flesh so that that flesh could be nailed to a cross. Being born of flesh and blood so that that blood could be spilled for our sins. Not for his friends, but for his enemies. So that our sins could be paid for, so that our sins could be atoned for, so that we could be reconciled back to God. There's no doubt that Christ is the most humble person who's ever lived. But this title, Son of Man, has nothing to do with humility. To think that Jesus is is trying to be humble here is to totally miss what Jesus is saying here altogether. No, not at all is Jesus uh, trying to show his humility. In fact, if someone is trying to show how humble they are, is that not a sign of pride in and of itself? If Jesus is not calling himself son of man to show how humble he is, is that not, is that not himself not being humble? So, so every time Jesus uses this phrase, son of man, he, he's not trying to be humble, though he is humble, He's identifying himself with this vision that Daniel had in Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 13, 13 and 14, we see the vision of Christ being exalted. What Daniel sees here ahead of time was when Christ would have been exalted to the right hand of the Father after his death, burial, and resurrection. You see, after Jesus died on the cross, they laid him in a tomb. But three days later, guess what? That tomb was empty. We sang about that this morning. Up from the grave, he rose again. Christ rose from the dead, victorious. Though he died for our sin, he defeated sin. He defeated Satan. He defeated death itself. And so Jesus rose from the grave on the third day. But then, 40 days later, Christ ascended into heaven. And the vision that Daniel sees here is the vision of Christ risen, Christ victorious, Christ 
crushed the head of Satan, accomplishing his work, and now ascending into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father. That's the vision that Daniel sees here, way ahead of time, centuries before that event would take place. And so here in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, Daniel gives us the vision that he sees. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given, to the Son of Man was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is Jesus today. This is where Christ is today. To him was given glory. To him was given honor. To him was given dominion. To him was given a kingdom And that kingdom includes all other kingdoms, all other peoples, all other nations, all other languages, all other cultures. And this dominion, how how long does it go? What's the expiration date on this dominion? It never expires. This dominion is not like the milk you buy at HEB. This dominion is not like that medicine in your medicine cabinet. You you never need to check whether or not Christ's dominion and his kingdom is still going. It is everlasting. World without end, his dominion shall go for all eternity. It shall never pass away his dominion and his kingdom. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Listen, if you have put your faith in Christ, you have been brought into his kingdom, the kingdom of God, and you have been brought into a kingdom that will never end and cannot and will not and will never be destroyed. The kingdoms of this world will be shaken. The kingdoms of this world, hear this, will be brought to their knees so that they might acknowledge the king of all kings. When the kings of this world, and I know we don't live under a king, but when our president, when our leaders, when our, our, our congresses write laws that, that, and, and, and put into practice laws and precepts and ways that are antithetical to Christ, those kingdoms will be shaken until those leaders acknowledge and recognize the lordship of Christ. What's going on in the world today? Christ is king. Christ is shaking the godless kingdoms of this world so that they will bow the knee to the king of all kings. That's what's going on in the world today. But but you and I hear this, our destiny is not tied to the kingdoms of this world. Our destiny is tied to the kingdom of God. He is our king, and his kingdom cannot be shaken. And his kingdom and dominion is an everlasting dominion. And in fact, the Bible tells us that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And so when the kingdoms of this world will not acknowledge Christ, he's going to shake them. He's going to sift them. He's going to bring them to their knees so that they will acknowledge him. Well, what is that great verse? Philippians chapter 2 talks about the humility of Christ. He left heaven's throne. He was born as a babe. 
He, he came to die. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. But Philippians 2 doesn't stop there. Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, therefore, God has highly exalted him. Lifted him up to be seated at his right hand. Highly exalted him and bestowed upon him what? The name above all names. So that at the name of Jesus, what? Every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is who Jesus is is it is a profound miscalculation to look at Christ simply as that peasant from Galilee that Jewish carpenter and to conclude that he is anything less than the king of all kings it is a profound miscalculation to conclude that he is anything less than this son of man described here in Daniel chapter 7 Is Jesus a good teacher? Yes, of course, he's a good teacher. In fact, he's the greatest teacher who has ever lived or who will ever live. Is Jesus a prophet? Undoubtedly, he is a prophet. He is the greatest prophet who has ever lived and who will ever live. Is Jesus someone worthy of honor and respect? Yes, of course, he is. Yes, he is all of those things. But don't make the great mistake of not recognizing that he is so much more than those things. Yes, he is a good teacher. Yes, he was a great prophet. Yes, he is someone worthy of honor and respect. But he is so much more. He is this son of man. He is the one who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We must not make the mistake that the scribe made in our text today. We must not make the mistake that the disciple made in our text today. Failing to recognize who Jesus is is. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. From him and through him and to him are all things. In him we live and move and have our being. Christ is king. Amen. And this is what the scribe in our text, let's go back to Matthew chapter 8. This is what the scribe failed to see. This is what the disciple failed to see. And so with that in mind now, Matthew chapter 8, let's look at this again. Just stirring ourselves back up on the reality of who Christ is. Let's look at these interactions once more. Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And the scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples came to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Three points quickly today from this text. Jesus makes no exceptions, Jesus accepts no excuses, and Jesus expects complete devotion. Jesus makes no exceptions, Jesus accepts no excuses, Jesus expects complete devotion. Jesus makes no exceptions. Point number one, here comes a scribe. A scribe was someone of notoriety. A scribe was someone who was well-to-do in their day. He was uh, someone who would copy the Torah, the the law of God, the the Old Testament. He he would painstakingly devoted his life to the preservation of God's word. So he was well-regarded within Jewish culture, Jewish society. He would also teach the word of God. He, He was someone of prominence, someone probably of means, Uh, highly compensated for this very skilled work. And so here we now have someone from the establishment, the religious establishment, from the cultural elites who is coming to Jesus and making this pledge, I will follow you wherever you go. 
And Jesus does not respect any of that. The Bible says that God is no respecter of persons. So, so Jesus is not going to say, oh, a, a scribe is joining us. Well, let's, let's roll out the red carpet for him. Let's, let's change our, our schedule. Let's, let's now start staying in you know, Ritz-Carlton and, and five-star hotels. And, and we're going to start enjoying the finer things of life because now we're cozying up to the establishment, the in-crowd, the cultural elites. Now, Jesus makes no exceptions for, for expecting complete and total devotion. Jesus doesn't have this mentality of, oh, great, a scribe is joining us. Now he can lend some credibility to our movement. Many today think, oh, if we could only get some, some celebrities to be Christians, if we could only get some people of notoriety to be Christians, then the kingdom of God would really advance. Jesus is not impressed with any of that. Jesus makes no exceptions. Whether we, 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 we come from a comfortable life or not, Jesus tells this scribe, he says, foxes have a home, birds have a home. If you're following me, you're going to be homeless. That's what he's telling the scribe. What Jesus is saying to the scribe is, have you counted the cost? Have you counted the cost? You're going to follow me wherever I go? You? You, the scribe? You're going to be poor and, and penniless and living out under the stars? You're going to leave your life of luxury? Leave your life of comfort? Leave your life of ease? To come and travel around and be persecuted with me? There is a cost to following Christ. There is a price to pay in following Christ. When we, when we come to Christ, we must recognize that he is Lord. That he is the Son of Man. And when we come to Christ, we make this profession of faith that Jesus is Lord. We acknowledge Jesus with our lips. We, we believe with, upon him in our heart. But our profession must go much deeper than our mouths. We must surrender our whole lives to him. All of our life. Not, not just a part of our life here and a part of our life over there. I've got that uh, seasonal situation. Anybody else got that going on? So, we, we don't just come to Christ and receive salvation without making him the Lord of our life. If Jesus is Lord, we must surrender our lives to him. We, we cannot be like those that that we read about in the last chapter in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus said, many on that day will come to me and say what? Lord, Lord. But Jesus will tell them, depart from me, I never knew you. You see, there are many who will call Jesus Lord, but he's not their Lord. There are many who, who will make a profession of faith, but they don't submit to Christ. They don't submit to his word. This is what the scribe is, is, is doing. He, he has not counted the cost. He, he's making a grandiose statement in front of the crowds. I will follow you wherever, you wherever you go. And Jesus knows that he won't. Jesus calls him on it. Likewise, Jesus will call us on our professions of faith. We must surrender our lives to Christ all of our life. Not just isolated parts here and there. Not just Sunday between 10 and noon. No, Christ owns it all. He's the son of man. And we belong to him. You see, many today want a salvation from Christ. They want their sins 
forgiven. They want the salvation that Jesus brings, but they don't want the lordship that he requires. So they want the forgiveness of sins, but they don't want the submission to his word. You you can't have part of Christ without having all of Christ. I've I've used this saying, I'll, I'll say it again. It's all of Christ for all of life. It's not part of Christ for part of my life. This is what Jesus is confronting here in this scribe. And so there are many who just want the salvation but not the lordship. They want the forgiveness of sins but they they don't want the submission to his word. They're much more content to have Jesus nailed to a cross than view him as seated on a throne. But we need to remember that the cross is empty. Jesus isn't still hanging there. Every time I see a crucifix, I'm revolted because Christ is not hanging on the cross anymore. That was a once and for all sacrifice. The cross is empty. The tomb is empty. The throne is what is occupied. We need to remember that. So often those who who want to view Christ on the crucifix want to deny him as Lord. They just want the salvation. They just want the forgiveness of sins, but they're not willing to submit to his lordship. Jesus says, "It's, it's all or nothing. It's all of me for all of life. You you can't have the work that I did without submitting to who I am. When we come to Christ, we profess that he is Lord. It is those who make the profession of faith that Christ is Lord and and those who have made a true and genuine profession that truly receive salvation. It is not the false professions of faith that will do anything for you. And if you believe that Jesus is Lord, you will obey his word. Jesus makes no exceptions. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank. It doesn't matter whether you come from from riches or from poverty. Christ requires lordship, acknowledgement from everyone. So Jesus makes no exceptions. Number two, Jesus accepts no excuses. Jesus accepts no excuses. Remember, Jesus is a what? A king. One of the funniest things I've ever seen was during the um, coronation uh, activities surrounding King Charles recently. And he had to go through all of these, you know, ceremonies and sign all these documents And they couldn't, for whatever reason, whoever was serving and attending and and bringing all, did anybody watch that? Those huge documents you had to sign? It it wasn't like printed on eight and a half by 11 printer paper from Home Depot. Like it was all of this regalia, all of this, you know, scrolls and these huge pieces of parchment paper that they were bringing in front of him on this special desk that, you know, they had used for a thousand years that kings have signed and they bring him this special fountain pen that he has to dip in here and all this stuff. And his servants couldn't get it together. There was all this confusion. They didn't know which paper went where and, and what pen he was supposed to use and the ink was dripping all over the place and he was having none of it. He was just like, get this and he's like, I'm the, I'm the stinking king here. Get your stuff together. That's a king. A king expects certain things. Jesus is no different. The the truth is that those people should have had their stuff together. And Jesus here accepts no excuses from us because he is a king. And so here comes a disciple who says, The scribe says, I'll follow you wherever you go. Willing to make a bold declaration in front of everybody for the notoriety that he thought it would bring him. 
Another disciple says, I'm going to follow you, Lord, but, but first, I've got some stuff i got to do. I'll catch up with you later, or, or maybe you can just wait until I take care of this, and, and then we can go to the other side. And there are many today who, who say this to Christ, Lord, I'll follow you, but, and then you fill in the blank. I'll follow you, but X, Y, or Z. I'll follow you, Lord, eventually. But first, let, let me go live my own life on my own terms. Uh, let me have a little bit of fun first in my teenage years. Let me have a little bit of fun in, in my 20s. And, and then I'll follow you. Or, or Lord, yeah, yes, I'll follow you, but... I'm going to wait till I get married, and, and then I'll, that, that's when I'll start following you. That, that's when I'll, I'll really get serious, you know, when it matters and when I get married. Or, Lord, when I have children, and, 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 and now it's important for, for them to know your word, then, then I'll follow you, and then I'll start living for you. Well, maybe when the children are older and, and they actually need you, then I'll start living for you, and, and then I'll be an example. Lord, I'll stop following you after my children are grown. We're just too busy right now. There's a lot going on. When the kids are grown and maybe when they're out of the house, then I'll follow you. Well, Lord, there's lots of grandbabies around and we're just so busy and so occupied. Well, maybe when they're a little bit older, then I'll follow you. Maybe when I'm retired and I, I have a little bit more free time, then I'll follow you. Listen, all we have is today. That's all we've got. That's all we have. The Bible says we're not promised tomorrow. All we have is today. That's all we got. All we have is right now. And if you are not living for Christ right now, it doesn't matter what you think you're going to do tomorrow. Jesus came to the, to the man who thought he had a long time to live and he said, you fool, your life is required of you tonight. Joshua speaks to the nation of Israel and he says, choose you this day whom you will serve. This day, today is what matters. I don't know about tomorrow. T tomorrow has enough cares for itself, Jesus says. Today is what matters. I'll follow you today. We must follow Christ today. We must follow Christ this hour. We must follow Christ right now. What, what, the only time that matters is, is now. Are you living for Christ now? And Jesus accepts no excuses. We might look at this guy whose dad just died and say, man, that's a, that, that seems like a pretty good legitimate reason for not following Christ right now. Jesus, have some compassion. This guy's dad just died. Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. What's he saying here? He's saying, let the spiritually dead take care of this situation. But you come follow me. Listen, there's an urgency here. There's an urgency in this moment. Jesus is leaving Jesus is moving on from this place. Jesus is going to the other side. If you ever come to a point where you stop following Christ, don't expect that you're going to have another opportunity later to start following him again. You see, this disciple had been walking with Jesus, but now he says, I have something that is more important I need to focus on right now. I'll come back to you Later, Listen, there are windows of opportunity that are open for a moment and then they are shut. And if we think for one moment that we can just put Jesus on the back burner for a little while and then kind of circle back to him again, you know, we'll, we'll come back to it after the holidays. I'll, I'll start paying more attention to my walk with the Lord, you know, after Christmas and New Year's. That's the kind of mentality that takes you away from Christ. And if you're already having that mentality now when you're following him, what makes you think you're ever going to come back? 
There are windows of opportunity. This, this disciple was about to miss it. And all of us, likewise, we need to live under that urgency. There's an urgency to following Christ today. I must follow Christ. I must live for Christ today. I have a window of opportunity today that I will never have again. I can't live for Christ tomorrow. I'm sorry, yesterday. I can't live for Christ yesterday. That's over. That's gone. That's done with. I can't live for Christ last week. I can't live for Christ last year. I must live for Christ today. Because once today is gone, I will never have it again. And guess what your todays add up to? They add up to your life. If you want to live a life that follows Christ, you must live for Christ today. Today you must live for Christ. I can't right now, can I live for Christ tomorrow? No. There's an urgency here. We must live for him today. We must not miss out on the opportunities, the unique opportunities that today present me. I will never have the opportunities that I have today, tomorrow, or yesterday. I can never have them again. I have to take advantage of them today, every day that God gives me. So Jesus uh, makes no exceptions. Jesus accepts no excuses. There's no excuse good enough for not following Christ today. And Jesus expects complete devotion. Jesus expects complete devotion. Remember, we're talking about the king. We're talking about this son of man with all dominion, power, and glory. And so Christ is saying to this disciple, are you more devoted to your family than to me? Are you devoted to Christ above all else, above anyone else? That's what we must keep in mind. Jesus expects complete devotion. Now, some people think that if they are totally devoted to Christ, that they won't be able to be devoted to their wives or to their children. But that's not true. That's not how it works at all. It's because of my devotion to follow Christ and to obey his word that I can rightly love my wife and children. Because it's his word that teaches me how to do it the right way. So my devotion to Christ does not weaken or limit my devotion to others. In fact, it strengthens it. Because it commands, his word commands me to love my neighbor as myself. So devotion to Christ doesn't weaken my relationships, it strengthens them. Because Christ instructs me in his word how to love others, how to love my wife, how to love my children. At the same time, I cannot make an idol out of my family that prevents me from serving Christ. Christ must be number one. And we, like this scribe, we can proclaim our profession of faith. We can come to church and we can sing the songs. We sang it this morning. I will worship you forever. I will sing your praises now. It's a profession of faith. It's easy to do when all is well. But what about when all is not well? It's easy to serve Christ when life is going in the direction we want it to go. But what about when it's not? What about when we're following him and Jesus doesn't pull up to the Ritz-Carlton, but he says, we're sleeping in the dirt tonight. The, the scribe was not going to follow Jesus wherever he went. Will we follow Jesus wherever he leads? We come to gather as God's people and we make our professions of faith here in his presence. But what about when we leave? What about out there? Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. Do we come in here and make professions of faith 
and then walk out the door ashamed of the gospel that we claim to believe? Do we refuse to obey the gospel even in our own homes? Apply the gospel even in our own homes? Leading our wives, leading our children, serving, proclaiming, sharing our faith with those around us? Or are we only making professions of faith when people in the in crowd see us and might think good things about us? Jesus expects complete devotion. Not just in here, he expects us to live it out there. And what this reveals is, is there true substance to our faith? Is there an effort to apply my faith? Is there an effort to obey God's word in my life every day where I'm at? Now, some of you might be here thinking, man, this sounds really legalistic today. I thought salvation was free. Now you're telling me I have to do all this stuff. Listen, salvation is a free gift. We don't earn it. Christ paid the price for our sin completely and totally. But the Christian faith teaches that now that my sins are forgiven, now that Christ has died and rose again, Now that Christ has put his spirit within me, giving me a new heart, giving me a new nature, giving me new desires, that I seek to obey his word. So yes, salvation is free. Yes, I receive it as a free gift of God's grace, unmerited favor. But following Christ will cost you everything. Salvation is free. Discipleship is expensive. And so Jesus says, you must count the costs. You you must not put your shoulder to the plow and, and look back. And so this is the demand that Christ places on our lives. He places demands upon us as his people, as the king, without exception, accepting no excuses, requiring complete devotion. And the question in front of us, all of us, all the time is, how will we respond? How will we respond? You may be thinking, this is, this is hard. This is demanding. If this is what Christ expects, I am falling woefully short. What do I do? What can I do? And the truth is that God has given us a pathway. He's given us a way of healing. That we must confess our sin, repent, and believe. We must confess our sin, repent, and believe. You see, unconfessed sin is lethal. Unconfessed sin is lethal. And if you have not been following Christ, but making professions of faith, hear me, you're living in unconfessed sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That that sin in your life is going to produce death. And you might look around and say, well, they're living this way, they're living that way, everyone's living this way, I guess I'm okay. No, you're not. You're just part of the cancer ward and everyone's dying slow death of cancer, of unseen sin. You don't don't look around and compare yourself to, to the other patients. Look at Christ. Look at the healer. We must confess our sin. We must bring it to Christ. We must repent and we must believe. Just because everyone else is doing it doesn't make the sin any less lethal. It just means we're all terminal. But we have a pathway of healing. We have a pathway of life. We have a pathway of of forgiveness. We have a pathway of freedom. It is confession, repentance, faith, and obedience. We have a a place of healing, and that place is the cross of Christ where he bore our sins and paid the price for our salvation. And so I want to encourage you today, if you hear this message and you're feeling that conviction of the Holy Spirit, don't just write it off. Don't just say, ah, it's no big deal. No, do business with God. When we come to the table this morning, confess your sin to God. 
Get right with God today. Confession, repentance, faith, and obedience. And watch how God will bring healing to your life. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? Father, we do thank you for your word. It is this lamp unto our feet and light unto our path. You lead us and you guide us day by day, moment by moment by your spirit. Lord, as we come to the table this morning, we remember the price that was paid to redeem our lives. We remember the sin that you died to redeem us from. And Lord, we confess our own sin. We confess our shortcomings, we confess our faults, we confess our weaknesses and our failures, we confess our sin to you today. We do so in hope and in faith in you and in your word that teaches us if we will confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, I pray that through your spirit, even right now, you would convict us. The conviction of your spirit would fall upon our lives. Lord, that we would be convicted of our sin. We would be convicted of our laziness, our, our lack of devotion to you. And Lord, that under that conviction, you would grant us repentance and faith today. Lord, we confess that you are the only one who is good, you are the only one who is righteous, you are the only one who is holy. We confess your goodness and your mercy and your grace to us, undeserving as we are. We confess your love and your boundless love as you came and you laid down your life so that we could be free, free of sin, free of shame, free of guilt, you bore it all. Lord, we remember these great truths today. We remember that we are washed clean today by your work and by your blood. We remember that you are alive today, victorious over sin, and that you are living inside of us. We come to the table today in gratitude, in faith. We come today with our hearts filled with love for you, our Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.